0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras.
1: Hello uh, folks, welcome to Season 5 of Wisdom of Friends Show. I'm your host, Cal Aras. Hope you're having a wonderful day. And today, I'm really excited to be introducing you to a good friend of mine. Her name is Tamson Webster. Tamson is an acclaimed keynote speaker, an idea whisperer, and a message strategist. She has combined 20 years in marketing, 13 years as a Weight Watchers leader, and 4 years as an executive producer of one of the oldest, and one of the largest locally organized TED Talk events in the world into a simple structure understanding, talking about, and creating lasting change. As a result, she is an in-demand consultant on finding the ideas that move people to action. Friends, this is a fascinating episode with a lot of golden nuggets of wisdom, where Tamsin talks about her famous and popular Red thread methodology for public speaking. You know, in this episode, we talk about how do you tell powerful stories in a short amount of time, how to be a better presenter, the five step framework that helps people and companies manage change, and much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only Tamson Webster. Good morning, uh, Tamsin. Uh, welcome to the Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took the time to be on this program. And let me start off with my first impressions of you. I first heard you on, uh, on Srini Rao's uh, UC podcast, and just your wisdom was so profound that I knew having you on the show, and ha- it's going to be a real treat for our audience. I'm so glad you took the time to be on this program. So welcome to the show. Oh, well,
2: thank you so much! Thank you so much. I'm I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: Excellent. And one of the ways that uh, Tamson we kick off our show is by asking our guest a simple yet profound question, and that is, "What's your favorite quote or philosophy that you live by, and how have you applied it to your life?" Mm, that's
2: I could give you scads of them. Um, <laughs> I, I think that the one that's probably most uh, indicative of how I work. And that's probably best, best, best put it that way is a stitch in time saves nine. Uh, it's a classic proverb that one thing you do now will save a lot of work and effort later. And I think it's honestly, cause I'm fundamentally lazy. Uh, but ultimately what I'm trying to do is make other things easier for people. And so it's something that I apply to myself You know, from everything from making sure I'm doing the good work now. So I don't have to do more, less great work later, Uh, but it's also why I do what I do and the way that I do it with clients um, of all shapes and sizes.
1: No, that's so great. And just for the benefit of the audience, Tamson is an idea whisperer, uh, change strategist, and she works with people and organizations, find the through line of their ideas to create change. And so what I'm curious about, uh, Tamson, is uh, what did your parents do and how did that shape your life?
2: So my my father was, uh, and this by the way is super fun. I feel like I'm inside the actor studio, which is I, I adore. <laughs> um, uh, my father my father was a navy commander. He was a submariner, a diesel submariner. So he traveled a lot when I was young, uh, and stayed very connected to the navy for all of his working life, um, and is still a huge fan of the sea. My mother uh, was an anthropologist or is an anthropologist by training. She has a doctorate in anthropology uh, and she, she directed that towards social anthropology. Her doctorate uh, doctoral thesis was in the, was in the phenomenon what's called the return and reunion phenomenon of what happens in military families and the dynamics of military families when, when at that time, at least the fathers came home Uh, and then she ended up working much of her life uh, for, uh, family services organizations in the Navy, uh, and then uh, in uh, various roles with government contractors helping them uh, get business, writing proposals.
1: That's great. So one of the questions, and having researched your background, and I know that uh, today you're like a presentation strategist and you really help entrepreneurs and executives really create their presentations and shape their uh you know, their uh, pitches, if you will, in a way that you have this uh, amazing methodology called the r- uh, red thread. And I want to get to that in a bit. But what I'm really curious about, Tamsin, is like, you know, how did this journey began for you in the sense, like, how did this story unfold for you? Did you always know, like, when you uh, applied for college, and I believe you went to Boston University, is that correct? I did. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh so, going from Boston University, and I believe you you lived in Texas as well for a brief period. And before, I did as for so, grad school. Yeah. yeah. So, walk us through that journey as to like because one of the things that <laughs> we often get from our audience is, how do we know what our purpose is? How do we know what our passion is? And uh, you know, and this kind of like ties in uh, very well into the red thread, if you will, uh, methodology as to finding oh, yeah. your unique core story. So, uh, if you could just walk us through your journey, that would be great.
2: So I spent most of my um, younger life wanting to be in art museums, actually. So uh, that didn't happen. (laughs) Um, But the evolution away from that – was actually an evolution towards what I am most passionate about. Now, I don't say that I have a single purpose. I frankly don't believe that people have one purpose. I think we're much more complicated beings than that. I think we have a set of things that drive us, uh, different levers to push, you can say, at different moments, that in different contexts, different times of your life, different situations, those different things propel you forward. In concert. So, with that said, uh, I wanted to be I I wanted to be an art museum director. Um, So, because I wanted to do something creative. And when I went to college, it was it was in the beginning of the nineties. So it was right after the big nineteen eighty nine crash, which I'm sure some of your listeners aren't old enough to remember. Uh, But it wasn't a great job market at that point. And so even though I had been in high school and had been very involved in the arts all through high school, I was like, I want to be employed. So when I went to BU, I went to uh, study marketing and market research because I figured that that would be a good employable skill. It was the most creative aspect of business uh, that I was aware of at the time. I got bored after the first year and then discovered that BU had uh, what's called a collaborative degree program, which would allow me to get two degrees, two bachelor's degrees in the time that I was there uh, by doing a little extra work in in the summers. Um, And so I added an American studies degree, and that's a study of, it's both a study and a method, it's both a topic and a methodology, I should say. So the topic is American culture in, in various periods of time, and the methodology is looking at a specific area in time from as many different perspectives as possible. So from the arts and historically what's going on and and politics and economics and science and discovery, like what are all the things that are happening simultaneously? So you get a much more dimensionalized view of what happens in American culture. I just figured that would be a good combination with marketing. Turns out it was. Um, When I graduated, there wasn't any good still wasn't a great time to get a job. Um, and so since I still had it in my mind that I wanted to be an art museum director, I was looking for arts administration programs. And it turned out that, that, uh, Southern Methodist university in Dallas, though I was not interested in Dallas. And as it turned out, Dallas was not interested in me. Um, <laughs> uh, I went to SMU because it, it would allowed me to duplicate in a lot of ways what I had just done as an undergrad. So I got this kind of you know this this uh, vocationally focused degree and a liberal arts degree uh, as an undergrad, and the program at SMU was combined uh, an MBA, which I I got uh, with a focus on organizational uh, behavior and management communications, uh, with uh, with something a little bit more broad, which was a which was a master's in arts administration with a focus on uh, crisis communications and public relations. So you can start to see some themes here of, you know, I was always interested in in multiple perspectives at the same time. Uh, I was still interested in the communication of ideas and concepts, both internally and externally. So undergrad was kind of external, out to the market. Grad was internal. um, And then, you know, specialized situations for the crisis. Um, and then it all seemed great. Like, yes, I'm going to do art stuff. And then while I was in grad school, I got a very well-paying job as, as a, as a management consultant research associate, um, and, and got my head turned by the money, I have to tell you. Um, and because it was just like, I can get paid how much, um, to do this, this management consulting work, which is fascinating to me because it was a, it was a change management consulting firm. It, was, it, it built on the organizational behavior stuff I had just learned. It built on all the, the communications things that I had, had worked on. Um, and in a lot of ways, it was really foundational for how I have managed the rest of my career. I discovered at the time I really loved projects. I discovered at the time that I really love working on a variety of clients uh, I discovered that I really like having a strategic role in organizations. Uh, I also discovered that I really didn't like Dallas. Um, and uh, and like I said, Dallas didn't like me because, yeah, I was uh, uh, short, brunette, and outspoken, which those three things are not necessarily, and I know I'm being unkind to Dallas here, um, not necessarily the norm in Dallas. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, I was also overweight at the time. Uh, And and classic true story that in my performance review at that particular company that I worked at after I graduated, um, I was told in a performance review to do my hair and wear more lipstick, Mm -hmm. which was a really good sign that it was time for me to leave. So then I said, well, maybe I should go back to this arts thing. Um, Took a 50% pay cut, moved back to the Boston area um and started working at a wonderful little museum up in not so little anymore up in Salem Massachusetts called the Peabody Essex Museum mm. and my my role there I just adored it I mean I loved being around art I mean I I always did um and so my job evolved while I was there I was hired originally uh, to do what's now known as um, development communications, which is essentially marketing for the development department, like helping the development department tie into, you know, the fundraising department tie into what the market more broadly is looking for and interested in uh, that evolved into um managing their exhibition program and that how it evolved into that is a much longer story. Uh, but I, I was put in a position where I was managing their five-year exhibition program and helped bring in at that time, the most successful exhibition they had had to date, uh, because it was about figuring out what was the, what was the kind of thing that, that the, the market and the audience and potential visitors would be interested in. Like what was a great match between, what people thought it was at the P. B. Essex Museum, being in Salem, like what would be a great match? And it turned out that it was the uh, traveling exhibition <clears throat> for the endurance uh, uh, expedition to the to the South Pole, the the Ernest Shackleton one, which people may be familiar with, where mm-hmm. the ship was trapped in ice and then they had to survive nine months on on the glaciers of of um, Antarctica. Antarctica, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and everybody survived, which is a freaking miracle if you know the whole story. Um, But that worked out really well. I was, I was there for, I don't know, three-ish years. Um, And what was interesting though, is I started to find that I I started to lose my love of the art itself because it was my job. And so I loved the trying to figure out what the right exhibitions were, but then by the time the exhibitions would go up, I just didn't even want to see them because I had done so much work to get them them up. Um, And then, so, you know, I started poking around a little bit and then a woman I had worked with or worked for, I should say, um, when I was in college, uh, when I was in college, I worked at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum here in Boston and she was doing some work with, a performing Arts College called the Boston Conservatory uh, here in town. It's now part of Berklee College of Music, and they were looking for a head of marketing, and that job had been open for a year. Uh, and it turned out that like they were just right for me, and and I was just right for them. And it was a it was that was wonderful. It was, it was my longest non Weight Watchers job uh, that i had. It was four and a half years that I was there, and it was really about. It was really exciting to be there to help shepherd that that institution from kind of not being so sure of itself into really having a clear position in the market and, and really helping them figure out what it was that made the conservatory unique in a city that has multiple music programs and, in fact, multiple music schools and colleges, not to mention another conservatory, um, which shall remain nameless. So, you know, I was there for a long time, very happy. Um, and it got to a point where I had really done everything I could do there. And one thing that I knew about myself, I've learned about myself, is that I'm a builder. Um, I'm an architect. I am not the maintenance person. Um, so once something's built, uh, you know, I, I don't tend to like to sit and optimize. I like to get the great, the, like back to the stitch and time saves nine. I like to get the good system built in the first place. Um, so then I started figuring out, well, what do I want to do next? And it's like, well, do I want to go to consulting? Cause I remember I still loved that kind of consulting from change management. Um, do I want to proceed in, uh, what's known as advancement in higher education, which is the combination of fundraising and marketing. And I decided I want to do that. And so I wanted to learn more about raising money, uh, because that's critical if you want to continue in nonprofits, which is where I'd spent most of my career to that point. So I got a job and it's the only job I got on a a cold resume submission, like sent it in to Harvard Medical School and then got the job as the head of uh, development communications at Mm. Harvard Medical School. So that was me figuring out, uh, back like I had done at the PBD Essex Museum, what was the communication strategy behind the fundraising for Harvard Medical School? And I adored that job. Hmm. Um, I mean, not the mechanics of the job and the politics of it, but the, the, the getting to dig into this amazing work that was done by these amazing scientists. Um, and trying to figure out how do we, how do you make what they do understandable to people who aren't scientists? That's essentially what my job was like, figure out the science and explain it to other people. And Uh, I just loved that job. Uh, However, the mechanics of that job eventually got in the way because it was a time of great change at Harvard. Uh, The time that I was there, I had three different deans of the medical school, three different heads of the fundraising department, and there were three different presidents of the university at the time. So eventually, even though I'm a change management you know, person at heart, There's a point at which I was like, Oh, I just, I just can't. There's just, that's a lot of change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, so from there I decided, well, let me go pursue, you know, it's now that I had totally left the arts. I was like, well, I still love nonprofits, but I really like this figuring out what the powerful idea is behind something. So where can I do that? And I ended up working, for a bit as a brand strategist uh, at a wonderful local brand strategy and graphic design firm called Samets Blackstone associates. They're still around. They still do amazing work. Um, and, uh, it was at the time that was at the time when social media started popping up. And so I got into that because I was also charged with helping to raise the profile of Samets from a business development standpoint. Um, And so that was a, that was fun too, because now I got to get back into what is it like to see ideas across a spectrum of clients and what's happening across a a whole bunch of different industries and companies and what do people care about and what does the market care about and what is it responding to and how important and learning how important it was to get the articulation of a concept just right in order for it to be as powerful as possible. So learned amazing lessons there from, from folks. Um, and then I got, you know, I essentially got recruited out of there by, uh, an advertising agency that was looking here in Boston that was looking for someone to kind of head up, um, you know, influencer marketing essentially and help with their, their new social and digital marketing practice. Um, and kind of after about a year, I got promoted to take over that practice and so then help them really build out their whole digital, uh, digital social content marketing thing. So now you can see I'm starting to focus more and more onto the ideas and the messages and the how do we get these things out there. Um, took the next step after the advertising agency by working with a, a boutique message strategy firm, uh, a, a little training and consulting company called Aratium with big ideas. Um, and then a year and a half ago decided, you know, I, I loved all that so much that I wanted to do it all the time, and that was informed by the work that I had picked up along the way of being the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, which I kind of missed in that recap, but <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that, that that was about five years ago now that I started as that, a good friend of mine who I would gotten to know through the rise of social media here in Boston. Um, we went out to lunch one day. He was the director of Cambridge, and he said, hey, I'm looking for someone who can help our speakers find their ideas and get really great presentations out of them. You seem to be good at that. You seem to present well, like, hey, do you want to do that and host the event as well? And so that plus all the years trying to find messages, I put all that together and do what I do now, which is help big thinkers make their ideas irresistible.
1: Wow. This is incredible. And then this, you know, as you can tell, I probably have a lot of questions now. But what an what an amazing journey. So it started off in Boston at BU. And then, you know, your focus and your love for the arts and communication that took you on a journey uh, to Dallas. And uh, it started a change management consulting career. And after that, you kind of moved back to Boston. And, uh, you started managing the exhibition programs for the museum and that led to the head of marketing position and then into Harvard Med- Medical School. And somewhere along the lines, you discovered that you are a builder, an architect that you like to build systems, uh, solid systems that you get hand off to, you, uh, once you are done with that. Yeah. And then that kind of leads to like, uh, you know, into branding and advertising and, uh, you know, influencer marketing and, uh, you know, being the producer of uh, TEDx, as well as uh, not doing the presentation strategist that you are. So that's amazing. And so my question to you at this point is, when you look back at your life, at your career, this incredible career that you've had, would you say, what would you say was like your breakthrough success moment for you? And what I mean by that is the turning point or the strategic inflection point uh, that life was never the same again moment. Was there a moment for you like that, or was it like Lord?
2: A uh, there's like eight of them. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing was, I think each of those twists, you know, because I, I, I there's some there's some famous person who says it better than me, but there's something there's some saying that goes like, when you look back, the past is always a straight line. You know, when you look forward, of course, it's just you can't see a dang thing. But when you look back, you're like, oh yeah, it actually, all makes sense. But each of those switches that I made had a had an, a, a main inflection point to it. And it was usually because something suddenly became at odds with what I believed uh, to be the right thing uh, either about the world or about myself. And, you know, I, I told you the one in, in Dallas when they were like, do your hair, wear more lipstick. And, oh, by the way, lose some weight too. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, okay, this, these are not my people. And, you know, at the, at the museum, uh, a similar thing happened where there was a you know, I, I was quite young at that point at the museum. I think by the, by the end, I was like, what, I don't know, 26, you know, and I was, I was fairly senior and now there was this one meeting where, you know, where we were having a conversation about the direction of something and, and someone just didn't want to listen to me. And I was like, Oh, excuse me, am I right in understanding that you, you are not going to even hear my opinion on this? And the person was like, yep, yeah, that's right. I'm like, Okay this is this is not my place. I, I'm going to go someplace where it's more valuable to where I'm valued. Um, you know, and so each of those – and it wasn't always a negative thing. I mean, I think the realization when I was at the conservatory was just – there was this realization that, you know, the only thing left to do was to help change the curricular direction of the school, and that was not – something I was qualified to do. So it was right for me to say, well, I've done what I can do here and leave. Um, I just think that each of those times, you know, I don't think there's one, but there is a consistency of it where there was something where I said, I just, I, I need to, there's a gap in my head, um, between where I want to be and where things are. And sometimes the, the way to close that gap was to, 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 to move and to and to either learn something new or to get closer to the thing that I loved. Um, but it was always these, these moments of realization of what I really loved to do in a certain place and what I was really good at and what could I do to do that more. Um, I think every move in my career has been to focus more deeply and more tightly on the, on the piece of my job that I love. So at the beginning of my career, um, particularly in marketing, you know, what I love to do, figuring out where the power in in an institution or an idea or exhibition was, was about like 1% of my job. And then 99% of it was like executing on that. And now I've been able to get to a point where my job is 99% of the time I'm helping people figure out where the power and their ideas are. And 1% is on executing the business. And that's, you know, if I, if that's probably the thing that I am most proud of in my own career management is that I've been able to steadily focus on the thing that I love the most. And the more that I focused on that thing as narrow and as counterintuitive as that might seem to other people, the more and more and more successful that can be that I've become because, you know, I, I, I'm not a marketing consultant because there's a million of those, but I, you know, people do know me now as the person to come to when they need to make their idea big enough to, to move the world. And I don't know that there's a lot of other people who focus that tightly on ideas, but it's because that's what I've loved. And so I decided to focus there because that's what I wanted to do. And it turns out that worked <laughs> Work as well. No, that's
1: so great, Thompson. And I think uh, one of the themes, if you will, or the the patterns that I'm noticing is like, you know, your clarity of, uh, you know, asking the questions, uh, as in like, you know, what do I love to do? And what am I good at? And then importantly, how can I do more of that? And it seems like Every step along the way, you've identified those opportunities. And specifically, and one of the things you mentioned with the Harvard Medical School, apparently that was a job that you really loved. And I think uh, what I'm hearing you say is that working with the scientists, understanding the science, figuring out exactly what they're doing, and then communicating it in a way, I believe, uh, leading to fundraising and things of that nature. So that question that comes up is, were there any challenges uh, that you faced uh, along the way? I mean, uh, which later on turned out to be like a blessing in disguise, or in, in another way, like uh, a favorite failure that turned into a major success during any oh, of these times? Oh man, stints?
2: all sorts of major failures. Um, yeah, I think the you know the consistent theme in the failures was in not understanding in various times that. The, uh, any time that there was a failure to communicate, the responsibility was on me. And so there, you know, there were times in each of my jobs where, you know, I, even that thing I said about the, the Peabody Essex museum, you know, ultimately that was on me. You know, if I got to a point with my colleagues where someone just didn't even want to hear from me, that's my fault. Like mm-hmm. that's, that means that I haven't done the work to figure out how do I position a message or an idea in a way that somebody will at least listen to it. Um, and I'd say all, all of my failures, and there have been many, have been in rushing forward with my own perspective on something, leading with that, and 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 not holding space for where somebody else already is with something. Um, you know, so you know, I <laughs> I remember my boss at the at the Boston Conservatory again, love that job, but I remember one time he called me combative. Um, And at the time I was crushed by that. And, um, and, and, and the thing was that it was, it was said in a way that was, you know, he was, he was absolutely trying to give me constructive criticism saying there's so much that you do well, Tamsin, and and yet there's something with how you put it across, um, that isn't working for people. And, um, what's, and I would have to tell you that that's that's the piece of feedback I've gotten over and over again in my career, which of course is ironic. Um, but that might also be why I've finally decided that I'm unemployable by other people, <laughs> 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 by other companies. Um, because one-on-one, you know, when I'm in the when I'm in, in a position of being in service to somebody, helping them figure out their there's never, you know, I'm never fighting with people because my my job is to help them find what's great about their own idea. And there is always something great. Um, but there's, there's been a, yeah, there's been some phenomenal, uh, failures of communication on my part, uh, that have been incredibly instructive to me. And what I'll tell you is the, where, where I learned best how to correct for that uh, was in fact as weight watchers. So that's the other job that I neglected to mention, uh, in any detail while I was going through the recap is that, you know, for, for 15 years in parallel to all those full-time jobs I talked about, I, I worked for weight watchers in my free time on evenings, weekends, early mornings, uh, cause I had lost 50 pounds. Now, uh, this year will mark, uh, 20 years since I started that process. And then next year will be 20 years since I finished it. Um, but my job at Weight Watchers was as a leader, and at Weight Watchers, what the leader does is the leader uh, both weighs people in, in, you know, at the beginning of a meeting and finds out how people did in the week. And so there's these moments of just seconds where you have to to frame what's what someone has just experienced on the scale, positive or negative. Um, and then the other major role of a leader is up at the front of the meeting, as it's called, for 30 or 45 minutes to. Um, to lead a discussion on a particular topic with the goal of changing someone's behavior afterwards and so I'll tell you nothing will teach you faster how not to try to convince people of something than (laughs) talking to people about weight loss you know five times a week for 13 years Um, and so what was fascinating is that that work and I, and I say this, I say it on my website, like I absolutely will tell you that everything I learned about change, about people, about talking to people about change, I learned uh, at Weight Watchers as, as a leader. And so I would take those lessons that I learned and I would apply them not only to my own interactions with people. And so, you know, once I started working at Weight Watchers, I got that feedback about not being effective communicator less and less because I was learning more and more how to, how to be effective one-on-one. But I was also using those lessons with, with the work I was doing, like for, for, uh, for these organizations. And, and you know, the medical school was definitely one of those places where I could see that in play. Um, because you know, there's, there's not much different between how you get someone to reach a conclusion for themselves about why they need to change your behavior when it comes to weight loss. And how do you get someone to reach a conclusion for themselves about why they should give money to an already incredibly wealthy institution? Um, these, these, these factors were the same. And the more that I could bring the lessons from, from one to the other, and it would go the other direction as well. It would go from work back into to weight watchers. Uh, the, the more, the more clarity I got about how to not only make messaging better, uh, but also how to make myself better uh, as a communicator.
1: Mm, That's so great. So here's a hypothetical uh, question, Tamsin. Let's say if you could go back in time and talk to your young self, what advice would you give her?
2: To go with the flow? (laughs) <laughs> to, to stop, don't, don't, yeah. Uh, bend, bend with the shifts in the wind, I would say is what I would say. I think I fought hard. And I think if I look back now, I'd realize that each one of those breaks and shifts and, um, change in path as painful as they were at the time, uh, they are absolutely the right thing. They were, they were the thing that I needed at the time. Um, and fighting just made it harder, and uh, so I would say, you know, bend bend with the wind as it takes you.
1: Mm, like flexibility is what I'm hearing. It's like bending yeah. with the wind. Oh, that's so great. So, and and we'll get into uh, the methodology here in a bit. But uh, one thing I'm curious about, Samson, is like when now having experienced the ebb and flow of life, the ups and downs, the career changes. And at this point in your life, what would you say is your definition of a successful life or a good life?
2: One that is consonant with who you are and what you believe in. Uh, So what I mean by that, consonance is the opposite of dissonance. You can use congruity, integrity uh, in in its place. But I really love consonance uh, because it it speaks to me and the the physical properties of of sound. Uh, Because I think that Consonance when we when we are when we are consonant with ourselves and with what we believe uh that is a it is a it becomes a physical state I mean I think all of us have had that experience where we've done something that we knew in the moment wasn't quite right, like maybe we said something we shouldn't have or we made a choice that we shouldn't have, and you feel it physically you feel that dissonance physically. Um, and so to me, the, 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 the mark of a life well lived is one that is, that is inextricably yours um, and, and is tight to who you are and what you believe in as you can be. So we've, we've mentioned the red thread a couple of times, but one of the origin stories of it, and there's multiple, by the way, uh, but one of the origin stories of the red thread, um, it comes from the writings of Goethe who described the British Royal Navy's use of rope, (laughs) and Goethe wrote that, and I've verified this, at least with somebody who lives in Britain who referred to it as the rogue's yarn, where they would make the rope in such a way that there was a red, there was a red thread in the middle of the rope. You couldn't see it from the outside, but it was there in the middle of it, and the reason why the British Royal Navy did that was that, so no matter where they were, like, where it was in the world, no matter what piece, like size of rope it was, no matter how big or small the piece was, that that piece of rope was always identifiable as belonging to the British Royal Navy, because you could see that red thread in it. And to me, that's the mark of a good life, that that, that everything you do has the mark of you in it, and that you are inextricable from it, and it is inextricable from you.
1: Mm, I love that. That's awesome. Uh, and this is a perfect segue, uh, for us to, uh, get into our next section, which is, uh, you know, uh, some of the questions that we have received from the audience. And before we get into that, uh, I do want to, uh, just want to appreciate and acknowledge you for just this amazing sharing. And this is like really this, so far, this has been just great. I'm,
2: just <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah. so
1: great. And so, so let's talk about the red thread, uh, methodology that, uh, so, I mean, you talked about the origins of it. So what I'm curious about is, and I believe I heard it on probably one of the podcasts or somewhere about an experience that you had about energy and power, the mm. distinction between that. And then, and then also, uh, you know, the example that you talk about is, you know, you walk into a doctor's office and, uh, you know, he says you need a surgery. And then there's that, there's that gap between solution and change, you know, the problem and the same. So could
2: you walk us through that? Sure. Well, the Red Thread uh, itself, you know, as I gave you one of the origin stories for it, the other one that, that is that is applicable here is that it's the it's the device by which Theseus escaped the Minotaur's labyrinth, if you're familiar with that Greek myth. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it's the way he found his way in and out. And to me, that Red Thread, you um, it, it is the, it is the thing at the root of all you, all of you and who you are. Think of it like your operating system, you know, your, your, the set of beliefs and assumptions that drive you to act the way that you do. Um, and so when I started doing this work, particularly with the TEDx speakers, and then when I started my own business and I was trying to figure out, well, how do I, how do I make it easy back to stitch and time saves nine? How do I make it easy for people to find their best ideas quickly and and the core of these ideas. And so, what I was what I ended up doing was was looking at well, what is the kind of information that people need to have before they will act? Like what you know. So I was trying to reverse engineer what I picked up through all these years of Weight Watchers and all this year all these years of working as a as a message and brand strategist. And I was trying to reconstruct and say, well, how do I make it easy for people? And and then. And what I realized was that there were these universal questions that we always want to have answered before we'll do something. And this is something I just saw over and over and over again. And as you say, yeah, I use this example, the doctor's office, which if, I, if you come in for a brand new physical examination and if, and if I'm your doctor and the first thing that I say to you is, so when do you want to schedule surgery? You're, you you want to have questions. And even if that surgery is the right thing for you, I know it. Cause I, as soon as I walked in, I saw something about you that said ah, that where well, that's going to require surgery. You need to know, you need to know why.
1: Mm.
2: And this is, and so that's one of those fundamental questions. And even so, even if I give you a problem, so that I have a solution surgery and now I know the problem, you, know, you still need something in between those two before you really believe me that the surgery is the thing that you need. There needs to be some other kind of, some other thing that you know and agree to be true before you will move off of your current state. So if I tell you that, you know, oh, I see a spot on your back, that's a problem. Well, you're just knowing that there's a spot on your back isn't enough to prompt you to surgery. So there's this other thing, like what needs to be true? What do I have to understand now is this second fundamental question. And so if I tell you it's lint, Well, that doesn't, that's not going to lead you to my change of having surgery. But if it's, if I tell you, well, it looks like it's precancerous, you're going to at least now not be able to ignore the fact that you have a spot on your back and doesn't mean you absolutely will do the thing that I'm asking you to, but now you can't stay still with it. And that is the key to driving people to action. It's the key to spreading ideas. The key to spreading ideas is that we have to recreate in our audience's mind the conditions that created the idea in ours in the first place. Mm. And this is what the red thread is, is because we have to see this connective tissue um, to a conclusion before we will act. And so when I started figuring this out, I started to figure out, well, what's, how do I help people answer these questions of why, what now and how, and if I could consistently get people to do that, then what I was doing was essentially deconstructing what the conditions were that created that idea for them in the first place. Most people know what they want people to do. If you're trying to go into, you know, if you're trying to pitch a new business, if you're trying to raise money, if you're trying to get people to come to your school, you like you know what the action is, you know, the change that they want, you want them to make. But we haven't always done the work of reconstructing why it is that we think that's a good idea. And so the red thread is a way to do that. It's a way to reconstruct that. And what I found was that there was consistent elements that if you understood what the what the audience's goal is, what do they want? What is the problem of perspective that you see that's getting in the way? They're going to, they are trying to achieve that goal with basically only one eye open. And because they're only seeing one half of the picture, they are missing this opportunity to actually fully achieve that goal. So what's what's the other half of the picture that they're missing? Um third, what is that thing that they need to understand and believe to be true? That if it is true, if they agree that it's true, makes that problem impossible to ignore. Um, and then finally, what now once you have that, then you've got what the change can be. So once I figured that out, I was like, oh, I can make this now super easy for people. I can ask them what's the goal, what's the problem, what's the idea, what's the change, what are the actions that support it. And I would end up doing two things at once. One was finding that core of the idea that really made it powerful. What's the idea behind the message that you're trying to get across? The thing that actually makes it make sense. That's the red thread. Um, And then, secondly, Because it is how we reach a conclusion in the first place, it also, almost like a free prize inside, provided a way for people to explain that idea in a way that would make it irresistible to people. Because once you've created that tension, really, between what somebody wants, the way they're currently looking at it. And a third thing that they believe to be true that makes that problem impossible, like once if somebody wants to stay healthy and they know they have a spot on their back and they know it's precancerous, they can't sit still with that. Like they they can't so that the 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 idea becomes irresistible to them. They have to figure out what to do differently. So um, that's you know in in a very large nutshell that's kind of that's that's the process it both is how you find the idea but also how you articulate it so that people come along with you
1: no it's great so really i mean uh, it's it's really the solution the change and then the idea or the bridge between the two is really communicating or articulating the conditions uh, to your audience in exactly the same way that you created those conditions for yourself and that made you compelled to take those actions right. so so that brings up another question um uh, so this methodology obviously can be applied uh, uh, you know most of our audiences here are executives and entrepreneurs and uh, creative artists so how would they uh, apply this uh, to communicating their business idea to their customers so can you give us an example of
2: uh, how might that work Sure, so I mean there's there's an, any number of ways to, to use this. Uh, one fundamental way is to understand what a business's core differentiation is in the marketplace to begin with. So a lot of my clients are end up you know, just for one reason or another end up being in somewhat commodity like industries that they have things that by and large they're, they're struggling because their salespeople are you know, competing on price and yet you know they believe there's something distinctive and different about their about their about their offering. And so you know, one way to use this is to say okay well first, of, first and foremost before you ever kind of figure out what the message is you have to figure out who it's for. And so the very very first question to answer for yourself is who are we for? And I don't mean like target market necessarily. What I mean is what you know what what kinds of people are they that's yes that's important. What category of people? But what do they want? Like, what do they know they want? What do they value? Because that's going to get them in line with how you approach solving problems. And what are they struggling with? Because if you understand their want, their value, and their struggle, then it's a lot easier for you to say, ah, all right, for these people, we help them achieve this goal that they have. And then you can say to yourselves, well, all right, well, other companies in this world uh, try to achieve that same goal. Uh, An example I often use is like coffee (laughs) you know so my goal is to wake up and i and i want caffeine delivered to me in liquid form you know there's many companies that that satisfy that you know and so the next thing is to say well let's look at that problem uh how do we look at as a company how do we look at uh Coffee, you know, what is the problem with caffeine delivery, <laughs> with getting the coffee? Um, you know, what's the problem that we see? Uh, you can look at Starbucks and can Starbucks can say, well, it's not so much the coffee as it is the things that surround the coffee. The problem is that there's no place for someone to you know sit with coffee and do other work. There's no third place. Starbucks is very famous for establishing themselves as the third place between home and office. Mm-hmm. If you're Dunkin' Donuts, you can look at it and say, well, really the problem is that these, these people are on the go. Um, and the problem is that they're having to wait too long for coffee. They don't have time to sit around in a coffee shop and whatever. They, they just need to be, be going. But then you get to this idea piece of this of the red thread, and you say, well, well what do we believe? Um, you know, what do we believe about that? And you know, take Dunkin' Donuts for instance, good New England brand. Uh, you, Dunkin' Donuts believes that coffee is fuel. Like that's that 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 for their people, for the people they're for, they view people they view coffee as fuel. So. If I have a goal of waking up in the morning and my problem is that, you know, all these other ways to get coffee, just it's just not fast enough. And I, like Dunkin', believe food is fuel. Well, then I can say, listen, what we represent differently in the marketplace is Dunkin' Donuts is a fast way to get good coffee so that you can keep doing your work. If I'm Starbucks, then I'm going to say we're going to provide because we believe that a third space is, the, is, is critical for you know, success and doing your best work then we're going to provide spaces where you can have coffee along with all these other things that allow you to do great work. And you can see that even though both places sell coffee, now you've got a much stronger identification for why you're different in the marketplace. So that's one way to do it. Um, But you can also use it to, to articulate even from a kind of elevator pitch standpoint about why, you know, why you're, why you represent something you know, why people should hire you. Um, you know, I have a, a client here in town who, uh, they're a digital marketing services company and, you know, the goal of their audience is to leverage the ROI on digital marketing Uh, The problem is this company sees it is that most companies that are hiring digital marketing services look at, look at all the pieces as individual pieces and not as part of a process. They don't look at their digital marketing as a process of tools. They just see all the individual tools. Um, But the thing that they believe, and they can use this as, you know, as a, as part of their pitch, but they believe that the only right system for marketing is the system that is tailored to the particular client. Um, and therefore, the change they represent in the marketplace is that they, the way that they ap- approach putting digital systems in place is that they use what they call a learning process so that they 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 have a process of discovery, they have a process of figuring out what the right tools are, they have a process for implementing them, they have a process for analyzing and, and, and tuning them so that the result is that they don't have to compete and say, well, my SEO services are better than your SEO services. They go in and have a conversation with someone about the learning process that's in place to make sure that their clients get absolutely the right system of digital marketing in place. You know, whereas a competitor is going to come in and say, well, we've got great digital analytics, you know, and if this, you know, my client had been there before, then they're going to be like, well, what's your process? And they're going to be like, Um, not so sure. But see, the thing is like, Anytime somebody starts a business, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: anytime they started because they see a gap in the market, they believe that there's something not there that that should be there. And so when you're thinking about how do I use this as an entrepreneur, as a business person, it's a, again, going back and reconstructing for yourself, what is it that you see in the world that nobody else does? How do you see, like, what do you see as a business or a company as the real problem why your audience, your customers, your clients aren't getting what they want? And it's not because they haven't bought your thing yet. That's never it. It's because there's some problem of perspective. They're looking at it as, um, you know, like I said, they're looking at it as pieces and not as a process, for instance, but when you understand that and you're in a much stronger position to be able to put your message together.
1: That's that's so great. What a great example of, uh, you know, the commodity of coffee and two examples of Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks. I live in Seattle here and, you know, coffee is a huge, <laughs> as you can tell. And you're absolutely right about Starbucks that it's not about the coffee. They are in the relationship business and the third place between home and Work and and really uh, the other message that I'm also hearing is like the red thread is really knowing what your unique genius is and knowing uh, what your ideal customer uh, is and what they're struggling with so that identifying that gap and being able to articulate the solution uh, to bridge that gap I think that's so great uh, I would be remiss if I and I know we are running short of time here and we got seven more minutes but I just want to kind of like if you could touch upon would this apply to uh, communicating your personal story when you do oh, a speech yes. and presentation and things of that nature. If you could just give us like maybe the top three points or highlights to keep in mind uh, in the interest of time, uh, how would somebody apply this to uh, giving memorable speeches, if you will?
2: Well, it's the underlying structure for it. And so, you know, you think of these pieces that I talked about, these pieces of the red thread, this, the audience goal, the problem of perspective, this I- idea that has to be true. Um, the the change that must result, the actions that support it think of those as the stations that you need to take you know, an audience uh, a, a potential customer through um, to reach to reach the end right So um, if and then what you're thinking through as you're putting together a, a presentation is well, what do I need to if those are stations like train stations what are the tracks I need to lay? what do I need to say to someone so they understand and agree with, the goal that I've put out for them. You know, so if I'm speaking to fellow speakers, for instance, I say, well, you know, I I could say, you know, we have a, you know, I could I can tell a story or something, or I can give them an example of a wonderful short TED talk and say, isn't that our goal? Don't we want to have something that's as powerful as that was in four and a half minutes? Um, so that's our goal, to spread an idea. And then I can say, well what do they need to understand and agree with to reach the problem that as I see it? And so let's say I say that the problem from my perspective with most, with most most uh, talks and presentations is that we mistake having the content for having clarity on that content. Uh, we think that just because we have an idea that it's going to be, that we're clear on it, it's going to be clear to other people. But, and, uh, and I, and I know in order for them to understand and agree with that, I'm going to have to explain things like the curse of knowledge that, you know, once you know a thing, it's impossible to imagine what it's like not to know it. Mm. Um, and so That you're never going to really be able to understand that difference, and I could give a you know I could give them example from their everyday life of you know have you ever if you've got kids have you ever been asked a question by them to define a word that you know what it means like you know what compassion means well try explaining it to a seven year old Mm -hmm. without also using other words that they don't understand Um, you know so that to land that point that you can know something but doesn't mean you can explain it. And then if I can say, okay, well, all right, if I believe, all right, what's the next thing that I need them to understand? What's that idea that has to be true? I can say, well, clarity is in the eye of the beholder or in the ear of the listener. And so I can say, well, right, until you understand, like it only matters until you understand it, right? It only matters. It doesn't matter what I think. And you're not going to do anything with something until it's clear to you like, okay, great. And so I could tell stories around that, give examples around that. And so what do I then need to lay? What are the examples, illustrations, stories, data I need to put in place before they'll agree with the change, which in this case, let's say it's recreate the conditions. Um, I could tell the story of the doctor's office. I could give that example where people say, oh, okay, because I want people, I want to spread an idea. And now I agree that clarity is not the same, you know, having content is not the same as having clarity on the content. And because I agree that clarity is in the ear of the listener, now I'm going to agree or at least consider that I have to recreate the conditions of the idea. And then as a talk, I can go and say, well, here's here are the here are the places where we can do that. We can do it from the concept. We can do it from how we construct the talk. We can do it, uh, we can recreate the conditions from a standpoint of how we communicate it, what, what, uh, illustrations we use and so you can use this as a basis for very very short form content just understanding for yourself like what's my elevator pitch for my business but also much much longer form content as well just by figuring out what is it somebody has to understand and agree with in order to move to that next piece of the red thread that next station on that mental journey
1: great this is awesome uh, we're going to skip the rapid fire round perhaps in the interest of time, but I'll uh, just uh, move on to i got final three questions for you. So the first one is, what is your current personal business project that you're uh, working on in the next uh, six to 12 months?
2: Uh, current business project is to, uh, is to, well, the biggest one I'd say is to, get a, is to get some kind of book written on all of this. It seems like it's been helpful to people. And I think I'd like to get it into a book so that Um, you know, people can have more of a DIY approach right now, all the work that people do is with me one-on-one. So if you're, you know, if you hire the red thread, you hire me. And uh, I, I would love more people. You know, and I'm, I'm a limited resource, <laughs> so I'd love to be able to have you know, more of a DIY approach. I think a book is a way to do that.
1: No, absolutely. And when you have the book ready and uh, right during the launch, uh, definitely uh, let me know, and uh, you know we'll uh, include that as part of our marketing and uh, advertising promotion. So um, any, uh, so three things you're grateful for in life, Samson?
2: Mm. Uh, I am grateful for a a partner who is my champion always that's my husband I am uh, grateful for the children who make me question everything I think I know about communication (laughs) Um, wonderful curious questioning beasts that they are I love them so Um, And I think the third thing that I would say I'm grateful for is the, the, the trust and the vulnerability with which I am entrusted. uh, I'm given um, by the people who've worked with me. I mean, to, to be able to work with people on their, on their deepest, most heartfelt ideas is a, is a gift of the highest order. And one that I, Never
1: take for granted. That's so great. Very inspiring. And I just want to acknowledge you, Tamsen, again, uh, for just being the stand you are for change, bringing the change in the world and like being the builder, the architect and uh, communicating with so so much of clarity and helping people discover their unique geniuses and using the red thread. uh, I call it the technology. It's so amazing. And 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 you deliver so much value. Just being on this call and, like, just giving out so much value to our audience. I mean, they're going to just love it. So thank you for being you and doing what you do, Samson. I appreciate it. Oh,
2: thank you so much. I, thank you so much for having me. It's always, always a pleasure. Then uh, one final
1: question, and this is how we wrap up all our interviews, and that is, why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends? Because...
2: What you know is the one thing that people can't ever take away from you. And everybody is an expert in something. And so by, by being open to the expertise in everybody, no matter their condition, no matter their state, no matter their age, you will always learn something that will change you for the better.
1: That's awesome. Again, thank you for your time and I enjoyed and appreciated our conversation this morning and for those of us listening, with that, we'll wrap it up and if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal If you enjoyed today's show, head over to wisdomoffriends.net to join the conversation, access the show notes and discover our fantastic bonus content. We hope you'll pass along our web address, wisdomoffriends.net to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out our archive on the website for previous episodes and subscribe on iTunes, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank Thank you. you. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.